and uh, well, it's good to be with you this morning. And as we were praying that this morning, as Pete was sharing that, as we were praying together, um, one of the things that just suddenly dropped into my mind, I'm a quite keen gardener, was, uh, and we have quite a lot of stones in our garden, and when I'm digging, I'm always throwing them to one side. But, you know, when you've got stones there in your garden uh, and you're trying to grow carrots, they end up distorting the carrots. And it's just suddenly also to that picture that, you know, if we've got stones in our lives, whether they are historical, whether they've been dropped in by some experience along the way, they can distort the way our lives grow and develop in God. And God wants to remove those stones so that we can be everything that he calls us to be and the beauty of Jesus can be seen in us. So this morning we are in Mark chapter 13, which is quite a challenge for the time that we have. Um, and so I can't possibly touch on the whole of, of Mark 13, but I can give you a general feel for it as we go through it this morning and hopefully leave you with some uh, challenge and encouragement. So if you've got a Bible with you and you like to turn to Mark 13, we'll be referencing that in just a moment. And the title that we've given to this morning's message is Signs of the End of the Age. And, and you know, I wonder during this present crisis, have you, have you read or heard anything about the end times? Um, I know I've, picked, I've met people who have said things like that, along that kind of line, wonder whether coronavirus was anything to do with something in Revelation and whether we should be on the alert for the fact that the end might be about to happen. In the midst of crisis, even the world thinks in terms of the apocalyptic. It's as if we all know that something is not right with, the world, with our world and that, that it can't last forever in its present condition. You think of the number of films that are out there that have been made along this line uh, where a meteor strikes, a disease perhaps, or there's a, a war and there are a few survivors left over. So even the world thinks in apocalyptic terms, but maybe more so uh, for us as Christians because we know that Scripture tells us that creation is, is groaning in labor pains in the hope of a better day, that Jesus is coming again and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so whenever there is a, a global crisis, people will try and find out whether this is it. Is this the end? Is, is this what Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 17, or even Revelation is all about? And so they try to read back from where we are into Scripture, and they try to fit people and events and inventions into what they think they see there. Because of the tension in the Middle East in the 70s and 80s, we, we heard a lot about the end times. I kind of grew up on, on pro, uh, lots of prophetic teaching, and books were written and films were made, uh, and uh, any, minute, any moment now we were told Jesus would be coming again. So we needed to be ready, and, um, and it had you on your toes spiritually. And then, of course, time moved on, and things settled down, and it seemed just like it had always been. And I want to suggest to you that maybe such an approach to, to uh, prophetic word to the scriptures undermines and discredits true prophecy. It's perhaps not helped by the different headings that are found in our Bibles. And remember, those headings are, are not inspired headings. They're, they're, they're what ordinary people believe that particular piece is about. And so we have in one version, Jesus foretells the future. So is that all about the future? Another has, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple over verses 1 and 2. 
And then over verse 3, it says, signs of the close of the age. And another version says, destruction of the temple and signs of the end times. Another one, even more so, is simply doomsday deceivers. So in relation to our title, perhaps we, we need to proceed with some caution and not jump to conclusions or read into it what doesn't belong there. Again, we, we just need to remind ourselves that we, what we've been seeing, that this is the story of Jesus. This is a, a biography that Mark is writing, and it is the, the biography of Jesus. So what is it telling us about Jesus? What is he doing in this situation? And as we've traveled through, through Mark's gospel, we've, we've seen a growing momentum, if, if you like, in the ministry of Jesus. He has been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He has been forgiving sins. He has been healing the sick. He has been casting out demons. He's even been raising the dead. He's bringing help and hope uh, to the oppressed, the, the rejected and the outcast. He's been welcoming those that the others had kept out. And the crowds have been, been, been increasing as he has traveled around preaching this good news of the kingdom of God. And then in, in chapter 11, we find Jesus and his disciples heading now back into Jerusalem. And as they enter into Jerusalem, the disciples can't help but sense that something is in the air. They, they've been here before, but somehow this time it feels different. And in their minds, it's certainly not about an impending crucifixion. I mean, the, the riding on the donkey, the enthusiastic cheering crowds... The dramatic turning over the tables and the casting out of the money changers from the temple. Talk about a demonstration of authority. This was Jesus. This was God himself coming and revealing himself in all his love and grace and power and authority. Surely this is the moment, this is going to be the moment when Jesus reveals himself as the, the promised one, the anointed one that Daniel speaks about in Daniel chapter 7. And, and they would be delivered, they would be saved, and David's kingdom would be restored. I mean, surely this is where it has all been leading, hasn't it? Surely it was right there, even in the references that Jesus made to himself as the Son of Man. That comes, of course, right out of the prophecy that we find in Daniel. So there's been a momentum building. There's a, there's a different atmosphere about the place. And, and as we came to the, uh, come to the end of, of chapter 12 in Mark's gospel, we, we find that the, the large crowd are, are listening to him with great delight. So there's an anticipation, there's an expectation and then we read in chapter 13 these words. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. I mean, this was a magnificent place. No other place existed like it. The temple was a magnificent building, nearly 500 yards long, 400 yards wide. The rebuilding was started by Herod in uh, 19 BC, and it took more than 80 years to complete. The magnificent temple compound was finished around 63 AD, only seven years before it would be destroyed. 
Its beauty is, is well documented. The Jewish historian Josephus says that it was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun uh, shone, it was absolutely blinding. And where there wasn't gold, there were white blocks of marble of such a pure white that from a distance, strangers thought that it was like snow on, on the temple. And if you go to Israel today, you can see some of these massive stones. And a few years ago, Pam and I did just that. And, and uh, you, you look at these stones, and they are huge, the ones that remain there in, in the retaining wall. The, these are, are well cut. They're quarry blocks of, of limestone, and they are so big. Some are 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and 15 feet deep. And most modern construction cranes just wouldn't be able to lift them. You, you kind of look at it, and you think, wow, how on earth did they manage to do that? And so you have this magnificent temple, this, this glorious temple, this huge temple, and suddenly Jesus says, verse 2, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. I mean... The shock of it, it just seemed so impossible. I mean, look at the temple. And if, you, if you've been there and you've seen some of those stones that are existing in the foundations and some of it that's in the rubble around about, I mean, they're, they're massive stones. It just seemed like a total impossibility for this temple to come down. And how? And, and why? After all, it was central to who they are. It was, it was about God's presence dwelling among them. And they're, they're thinking that Jesus is going to be king. They're, they're thinking that he's come to reestablish David's kingdom, to kick out the Romans to, and to restore David's kingdom, of which the temple was a big part. So the disciples are, are shocked. And they, 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 they go away. And it says in verse 3, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him. This is something that happens frequently in the ministry of Jesus. He would be talking about various things. He would be teaching in different ways. But he wouldn't tell them everything. And he would be waiting for them to come along and, and ask questions of, of what he was saying. And this is just what the disciples do. They come alongside him privately and they ask him, tell us, when will this happen? And what sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Or as it has it in Matthew, it says, what sign will signal your return or coming and the end of the world or the end of the age, depending on which version you're reading? And there's a debate here about whether one question is being asked and it's two, what, two sides of the same kind, coin or whether there are two questions being asked here. And I haven't got time to dig into all of that in this time we have together today. But the Bible talks in terms of ages. And so to talk in terms of the end of an age doesn't necessarily mean it, that Jesus is talking about the end of the world. The age being referred to here is the, the culmination of the Old Testament era of the temple, of the priests, and of, of the sacrifices. 
If you have a Bible and you can back over to uh, Matthew 23, preceding this, this, uh, uh, this uh, teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, we read these words. We, we have that whole list of woes, seven woes that Jesus pronounces uh, over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is representative not only of the, the priestly ministry and the authorities, but of all the people of God. And then at the end of it, in verses 37, 39, we read these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, the, the, those, and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen and gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the right to be children of God. And the sad fact is that many did not. And many were against him. And even as Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem, the authorities are plotting how they can, how they can get rid of him. They, they fear him. They, they feel that he is a threat to them in some way or other. They feel that he is a threat to the system. They must get rid of him. They must annihilate him. And I think these must be some of the saddest words in the whole of Scripture. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. The very people that God had sent to, to speak to it. And stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And I just want to allow the weight of that to sink in for a moment. The very one who had been promised to them, who was now amongst them, and whom they had heard time and time again, and whom they were rejecting, how he feels about the very people that he has come to. And then he says, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is the context that we have as we step over into chapter 13. And in Mark chapter 12, we, we have the parable of the vineyard and the, the wicked tenants where Jesus talks about how judgment will come and the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others. So this is a, a solemn chapter. It's a serious chapter. It's about people who had had God's presence amongst them who heard God, as it were, in person and yet rejected him. And so judgment was coming upon Jerusalem and Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And so it's about the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. God will no longer live in a physical building, but he will dwell with his people. So for Jesus, this is all tied to his imminent death and resurrection. Jesus has spoken clearly about it three times in, in Mark's gospel, that he came not to, to be served, but to serve and to, to give his life a ransom for many. Three times he had spoken clearly that he must uh, give his life, he must go down into death and rise again. And that's the reason why Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Whatever the agenda of the others may be, Jesus has come to Jerusalem because he knows that he was born to die, to die for you, to die for me, to die for us all, to bear our sins, to bear the punishment upon the cross, 
to pay that price, to go down into death and to rise again, in order that we might be forgiven, that we might be made clean, in order that we might have new life and new purpose and new hope. So even as he predicts the temple's fall, an event that will occur about 40 years later, and speaks of his, his second coming, he is still thinking about his death. Judgment must take place before the new can be ushered in. And so, we haven't got time to go through all the verses here, and I just want to bring some things together generally. Verses 5 to 23 are divided by some into two parts, from, from 5 to 13 and then 14 to 23, with the first describing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, and the second part, the second coming of Jesus sometime in the future. However, I think it's probably better to treat the verses uh, from 5 to 23 as describing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And my, when you read these verses, let's just take a few moments just to read some of them and get what's going on here. In verse 5, Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pangs, with, with more to come. And when these things began to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what you are to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death, and a father will betray his own child. Children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He is talking about the destruction of the temple. And I can only encourage you to go and read your history if you like and find out some of the detail that goes on here and how actually it was fulfilled at that particular time. The Roman army was uh, cautious and methodical and relentless in the way it went about its business, and Jesus warned them about playing a waiting game to see how it would work out. The intensity of the coming disaster meant there would be no joy in motherhood. And so in verse 17, we, we read these words, how terrible it would be for pregnant women and for the nursing mothers in those days. And then in verses 19 and 20, the, the language deepens, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. So there is a deepening and a darkening in the language that is going on here. And though it would be bad, though, it would not be the end of all things because it says it will never be so great again there in verse 19. The world actually would continue after everything has taken place. 
And so that this first section, it closes in verses 21 and 23. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to, see, to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out, I have warned you about this ahead of time. And so the, Jesus closes off this section with a warning. A warning about imposters, about pretenders, about false prophets and false messiahs who would perform all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders in order to deceive. And Jesus says, don't believe them. That was Jesus' warning. But sadly, many Jews did. They, they succumbed to, to such claims. And Josephus records how they were encouraged even to resist the Romans. But sadly, they ultimately lost their lives. So it's watch out. It's be on the alert. And that brings this section to a close. And then in verse 24, we have a transition. It says, at that time, after the anguish of those days, as Jesus turns their focus towards a different day and a different time, his, his second coming, and he, he closes this off with a parable about a man going on a long trip who leaves his servants in charge, each with his responsibilities. And so if you, you look down there, we we read at that time, the, the anguish of those days, the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and uh, heaven. So Jesus is setting up Another part of the story, he is coming again. Yes, Jerusalem and the temple will be judged. It will be destroyed. A new age will come in. The age of grace, as we call it. The age of the gospel. And, and, and one day that will come to a close. Jesus will come again and he will judge the world. And so he brings this section to a close in verse... Uh, down at the end in verse... Um, Thirty-two. Let's read. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work that they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch. For you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at break time, at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. And so Jesus is calling them up. And in, in this particular parable that he closes the section off with, it's about a man going on a long trip who leaves his servants in charge, each with his responsibilities. But there's no indication of exactly how long he'll be gone or when he'll be back. So yes, Jesus was saying he'll be back. He's coming again. And, and if you doubt that, if you doubt that, you should go to Jerusalem and, and visit the Temple Mount and see if you can find traces of the temple that was built by King Herod. 
And just as surely as there's nothing left, not one stone upon another, so we can be sure of the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to this earth. And so there are indicators of when Jesus will return, but not specifics. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple act as a, a type of the last judgment when Jesus comes again. But our greatest problem, our greatest danger is, is getting bogged down in the details. And I've known people spend ages and large amounts of money for like on all sorts of books trying to work out the ins and the outs of the end time. And you can do that kind of thing and get bogged down in the details, but that's just what he doesn't want us to do. The important thing is believing and living out the gospel. Instead of, instead of speculating about the end time events, scripture is more concerned about our vigilance and our perpetual readiness. And so Jesus says, watch, stay awake, don't sleep, don't be lazy, don't be indifferent, fulfill your responsibilities. In Matthew's Gospel, this section is followed by, in Matthew 25, with the parable of the ten bridesmaids or the, the ten virgins. Five were ready and five weren't. And as a young Christian, I used to struggle with this particular parable uh, because uh, there's quite a lot going on here. And, and I used to think, well, why don't the, the five who, who've got it already share something of their oil with those who haven't? But that's not what it's about. It's not that particular principle. What it is saying is that you cannot give your preparation to another. You can only be prepared for yourself. It's your responsibility to be right with God. It's your responsibility to be walking with him. It's your responsibility to be filled with the Spirit. It's your responsibility to be serving his purposes as best you know how. So the important thing is to live in such a way as we are not caught out. It doesn't mean living in a, a paranoid or a legalistic way, but it's living as best as we know how in the grace and the goodness of God. And so 1 John 2 verse 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame at his coming. So what we need to do is abide. To abide in him. Are you abiding? How are you abiding? And Thessalonians tells us, in verse 6, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an encouraging and hope-filled word that is. And then in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so here we are. Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and it happened. Jesus said he's coming again. And as surely as that happened, he will. The question is, are we ready for him? The question is, do you know him? Is he your saviour and Lord? Have you come to know him as your own personal friend? The question too is, for us who know him, how are we living? Are we abiding in him? 
Are we living those sober lives and putting on faith and love and living in the hope of salvation? Are we stirring ourselves up in that way of, of love and good works and not neglecting to meet together? Are we encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching? And we know that as we move through this story, ultimately it will be go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so our, the challenge for us is to, to be living in readiness for his coming. And the best way to do that is be to be right with him, to know him, to live with him, and to serve him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this magnificent story, the story about your great love and amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for this gospel, this amazing, amazing gospel which brings the forgiveness of sins, which brings cleansing, which brings renewal, which brings hope for the future. Oh God, we praise you that you, history belongs to you. And Jesus, we bless you that you're coming again. Help us to be those who live in readiness for your coming and help others to be ready as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're going to finish our time together there. Uh, please do join us for tea and coffee at 20 past 11, just an opportunity to catch up and chat to others. Uh, please uh, take time to consider what Richard said today. Let's continue to remain in Jesus. But also, let's continue to keep encouraging one another. So love to you all. I look forward to seeing you soon. And I hope to see some of you for tea and coffee in a few minutes' time.